So I'm excited to be here this morning, and uh, we're going to keep going with our series, uh, Broken Branches. But before we get into it, I want to say that I know as you look around this room right now, there's just a few people here, right? Um, but this is not the extent of our church. We know of a lot of places where people are this morning, or they had to be, or, or whatever. Um, there are things happening in this church, and I don't just say that. God is at work in people's lives, um, and there's more things happening than what is just obvious on the surface. But I know that because I'm involved and I'm reaching out and I'm asking people how they're doing and that we're, we're having those conversations outside of this Sunday morning meeting, right? Um, so I'm asking you or I'm inviting you to do the same. Reach out, see how people are doing. If you're not doing so great or if you have a need or if you just have something exciting, reach out to somebody within the church um, and, and do that. And I'm encouraging you to do that. Connect with the community. If the church is important to you and if bo the body is important to you, then you're going to reach out and you're going to connect with people from this church. So I would invite you to do that. Um, come to the corn maze this afternoon, right? Come to the corn maze, get lost in some corn, have, uh, have a good time in the pumpkin patch, pick a pumpkin, take some pictures in front of the fodder shock. Got to be careful how you say that one, right? Um, but do it, have fun, get, in, get, in, get involved with that, um, and get out of the house. It's going to be beautiful this afternoon, I think. I hope, I promise, I don't promise, I hope um, that it's going to be beautiful this afternoon. But join in and make some of those connections by the threshing floor. Remember that message a couple of weeks ago? By the threshing floor. If you haven't heard it or you, didn't, or you weren't here that morning, go back and listen to it because that is a message from God to us as a body, not just um, to you but also to me. So reach out and get connected. This week, we're going to keep going on uh, with our Broken Branches series, and we're going to look at uh, Abraham's family tree a little bit more. Um, it's a little bit further removed from that. But last week, we talked about Hagar and how Hagar, um, in her situation, in her family, she was really, um, she was an outsider. Uh, she was just kind of used for other people's purposes. And, um, and even in the midst of that, God specifically met her and said, I see you. I hear you, I know you, I understand you, I know that that is the circumstances of your family, but that's not how I see you, and that's not how I relate to you, um, because some of you specifically need to know that God sees you, right? And so we had that conversation last week. Well, this week we're going to keep working through some of the family tree of Abraham, and guess what? There's more broken branches, more broken branches. So we're going to go to a couple of generations removed from Abraham at least immediately, Abraham and Sarah. And we know that Abraham and Sarah eventually had a son named Isaac. He was the, the child of promise. That was the, the lineage there. Um, and then Isaac married a woman named Rebecca. And that's not the most romantic story. I mean, it's not a Hallmark movie if you're looking for one. But it's there, right? They kind of meet and they, they have a, um, an understanding. Um, and, then, uh, and then they get married. And then... When we get to Genesis 25, we're going to pick up there and we're going to look at Isaac and Rebecca and their family, right? And, and their family life as they relate to some of their kids. So we're going to go to Genesis 25. Um, we know Rebecca becomes pregnant. And if you're familiar, you know that Rebecca has twins, okay? She has twins that are wrestling within her womb. So much so that there is a, a, a Rebecca goes to God and says, all right, God, what is this? Like, why, why is this happening to me? What is, and, and helps her understand. Um, so even before we meet the two, you can kind of see some tension brewing between these two boys. So anyway, let's go to Genesis 25. She asks God, Rebecca asks God, what is this? Why is this happening to me? 
And God answers her and says, in verse 23, he says, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So even before they're born, that statement from God expresses that these two boys are going to be at at odds with one another, right? There's going to be some kind of tension um, in there. And God says the older is going to serve the younger. That's not the normal um, way of things in this society. So there's going to be something. There's going to be some upheaval to the order of all things um, in this family. And so then in verse 24, we continue on. It says this, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, excuse me, red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. Afterward, his brother came forth, and with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And that means red, Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. Esau said, behold, I'm about to die. Of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. He ate and he drank and he rose and he went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So just like last week, I want to look at kind of the family dynamics that are happening here um, and what we're, what we're seeing in this, per, this picture. Particularly, the thing that I'm focusing on this week or that, that really caught my attention uh, is in verse 28. We just read it and it says, Now Isaac loved Esau. But Rebecca loved Jacob. We're talking about broken branches within the family, right? Broken relationships, people who operate in their family, in a family cycle based on broken understandings or broken patterns of behavior. And I can tell you that one tried and true way to cause trouble in your family is to pick a favorite. Pick a favorite. It's an absolute guarantee for trouble. Even if it's little, it's probably not going to be little. But even if it's little, it's going to cause issues. It's going to cause trouble. I joke with my boys sometimes uh, when they say, they, when one of them like gets something, when one of them gets something that the others don't, <laughs> right? Um, or they, they, they get to do something that the other ones don't. And they say, Dad, why do they get to do that? And why? I, with as straight a face as I possibly can, I, have, I look them in the eye and I say, because I like them better than you. Right? And that's usually met with, Dad, stop. Blah, blah, blah. Why do they get to? Right? They just completely ignore it. They just completely ignore it. Why? Why do they completely ignore it? Because they know it's absolutely ridiculous that that would be the case. It's not true. It's not true. The fact that I would love one of them more than the other or prefer one of them over the other, it just doesn't make sense to them because they know it's not true. But we see it in scripture all the time, don't we? We see it in family life all the time, too. This is not a unique thing. Jacob himself, who was a victim of favoritism in his relationship with his father, right? Because his father loved Esau. But Jacob himself later on has his own favorite son in Joseph. Actually, too, Joseph and Benjamin, because they were from his favorite wife. Um, 
But he gives Joseph these, these special gifts. He ends up treating him differently. And of course, that causes trouble with Joseph and his brothers, right? They end up throwing him in a well, and then they pull him out and only to sell him as a slave and tell their dad that, that he was eaten by a wild animal. Um, causes trouble, right? Favoritism causes trouble. But this idea of favorites or of favoritism is a recipe for broken relationships within the family. And when you look at what it does in the lives of Jacob and Esau, I think what we can see is that there is very clearly competition between the two. And that favoritism or an understanding of favoritism creates competition in the family. It puts these boys at odds with one another, right? And it also really puts the, the parents at odds with one another because this one's my favorite, but this one's my favorite, right? Um, and, and, and they have this competition, and later we find out that Rebecca lies and cheats, and Jacob lies and cheats in order to get a better blessing for, for uh, Jacob that was supposed to go to Esau and all of those things, right? So, so it just causes trouble, and it causes this competition that we see. And favoritism... It's not in, in this family or in this society, it's not, just, it's not just within this family. It's actually built into the system of the society in a really major way. When you look at this account, the thing that we read about at the very end is called a birthright, right? And the birthright went to the firstborn son for no other reason than they were the firstborn son, okay? And that birthright basically meant three things. It gave this, the oldest son advantages in life in three different ways. Number one, it gave that son the authority of the family. After the father passed away, that was the one that was in charge. That was the one who was in line for the authority of the father. Um, number two, it gave a double portion of the inheritance, meaning if you had an inheritance and you had three sons, you would divide that up not three ways but four ways, and the oldest son would get two of those portions while the other sons got the other two portions. In other words, that, what's, that's major, right? That's a major advantage. We're talking about half while the other brothers get a quarter, okay? So that's a, that's a major advantage in life. It's a double portion um, when the father dies. And then finally, the third thing that a birthright meant is that the oldest would inherit the uh, functions of the priesthood in their family. So they were like the, the, the spiritual head of the household as well. So the birthright went to the oldest brother, or the oldest, yeah, the oldest brother, the oldest male in the family, for no other reason than he was the firstborn. And it's kind of favoritism built into the system in that way. And there's still cultures that today kind of operate on, on, on this uh, favoritism kind of a thing. It's not called a birthright, but I know of a family who the oldest son, they're all grown up now and they all have families of their own, but the oldest son, when he was young, the family, the father and the mother, probably just the father, made some investments in his name just for the firstborn. And that has set him apart from the rest of his family from the very beginning. And there's a lot of other ways that we see favoritism happening in, in that family for this oldest son. But that, that son is way better off financially than any of the rest of the family. And it's because he was the firstborn. It's just the way you did it, right, in that, in that system. So it's not foreign to us, this idea of a birthright or even um, favoritism. But that's the case with, with Jacob and Esau. The birthright is an advantage to Esau simply because he was born a couple of seconds. It's not, it's not even like they were born years apart. It's just a couple of seconds. 
he literally, it says Jacob had his heel. Like, so maybe they were kind of born, at, you could say that's born at the same time, right? Because he came out holding on to the other one. Maybe, you some, maybe some of you know what it's like to be in a family with favoritism. Maybe some of you are the oldest and you know what it's like to have certain advantages because of it. Maybe you, maybe you don't even recognize it. Usually the oldest doesn't or the one who is favored doesn't even recognize it. Well, this is how he treats us all. No, it's not, right? Everybody else knows it, but you don't. But maybe you know what it's like to have certain advantages over the rest of your family because of favoritism. Maybe you're on the other side of it and you know what it's like to experience the hurt of a, a, a sibling being preferred over you. And you know what it's like to experience, well, why, why, why are they treated better? Why do, you treat, why do you love them more than me? What, what do I have to do in order to be on the same level as my sibling, to get the same amount of love as you? Favoritism is ugly. It really is. It's ugly. And it'll cause trouble within the family in the form of competition. And that just leads to broken branches. But this idea of favoritism as I thought about it and I processed it this week, really started me on this line of thinking that was very similar to what we talked about last week. And last week we kind of touched on this, um, or maybe it was a major point, but this week it's definitely going to be a major point, and that is th that you can't let your human family relationships dictate your understanding of your relationship with God. You can't let your human family relationships dictate your understanding of your relationship with God. We often use family terms to describe relationship with God, don't we? We often, we often do that um, to, to, to describe what it, what it feels like or, or what it is to experience God. Family terms to experience or to, to describe what it's like to be in the church in that way. But when we do that, when we do that, we also have to be aware that our experience with those human family relationships, whatever they were, we're going to bring that forward, and likely that is going to color or temper our relationship and our understanding of our relationship with God or with the church. And most time, we don't even understand it. We don't even recognize it, that that's what's happening. Here's an example. Father God. Father God. When you say Father God, when you call God your Father or have that understanding of Him as your Father, your understanding of what that implies to call God your father and what it means about who he is, what it means about how he feels about you, how he sees you, how he relates to you, how he treats you, that's probably colored by your experience of your earthly father. Probably tempered by that. If your earthly father was absent, maybe that's what you expect of God. If your father left you, you might always be wondering, is God going to leave me too? If your father was abusive or dishonest or had favorites, you might be expecting that of God too. If you use the term, the family term, brothers and sisters, to refer to your brother and your sister in Christ, church family, what you expect out of that kind of a relationship, out of a brother or a sister in Christ, is likely colored and tempered by your own familial relationships. 
what it is to have brothers or sisters. Or if you didn't have a brother or sister, if you were an only child, it might color it in the sense that this is the ideal thing. You always wanted a brother or you always wanted a sister. And if I had that relationship, this is what it would look like. And so it's tempered by that or colored by that. I'm not saying absolutely across the board, but it's a possibility. When we talk about the church as a family and that family is a core value of our church here at Capitol Vineyard, your understanding or your expectation of what that might mean or what that might look like you for, for you to be involved in the family is probably going to be colored by your experience with your other family, right? So we need to know. Individually, we need to know that we're affected by those terms that we put on God or that we put on the church. So when we're dealing with a broken family, because all families are broken in some way, we're dealing with broken family situations, we need to recognize that. And it would probably do do us some some real good to think and, and reflect on it. How is my perspective or understanding of the church, of the spiritual family, or your individual and my individual relationship with God influenced and impacted by those imperfect human relationships. Reflect on it. Ask yourself. Explore it. And I think of this idea of favoritism, and the reason I just said all of that is because we need to recognize that it's a thing that we, that we deal with in the church, Okay? Many people feel like within their family there was, a, there was a favorite son or there was a favorite daughter or there were siblings who loved each other more than everybody else. And whether that was the firstborn, you feel like they got away with everything and they got to do all the stuff or they didn't get away with things but they got all the advantages because they're the firstborn or whether that's because you're looking at the youngest in the family and you're saying, well, they get away with everything. Mom and dad don't even care anymore, right? They get to do all the stuff that I was never allowed to do in that way. We have to look at those attitudes. And those might be realities within your family or within your experience, or they might just be things that you've projected that you you assume or you believe. But we need to know that within the church, God does not have favorites. God doesn't have favorites. He doesn't. And I think scripture is really clear about that. Now you might ask, okay, wait, 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 wait. This whole series is on Abraham's family tree abraham's family tree like abraham he was chosen god chose abraham out of everybody on the planet to be the the father of his people and then he chose israel right the hebrew people how can you say that god doesn't have any favorites how can you say that there are no favorites there when god clearly chose them well let me ask does the fact that god chose abraham for, the, for, for this purpose, require that he likes him better than everybody else? Does it require that Abraham is God's favorite, that he loves him more? Does the fact that he chose the Hebrew people to be the messianic line, to bring the Messiah into the world, does that demand that these people are his favorite over everybody else? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it means that these are the people that God chose to bring the Messiah into the world for the world, for the whole world, right? For the whole world. 
but it's the role that they were chosen for. It doesn't mean that they're his favorite. God's redeeming the whole world through them, not just redeeming them. If they were his favorite, he would have left everybody else out, but he didn't, right? It was the whole world. It's like the priests and the prophets in the Old Testament that God spoke to and brought the word of God through them to this chosen people. Were those priests and prophets then, because they were chosen for this role, were they then elevated above and chosen above the rest? And God liked like them, out of all these liked people, out of all these favorite people, the chosen people, did God like and choose and favor these priests and prophets more than, than even that group? No, it means that they were chosen for a role. They were chosen for a role. And we can remember that within the church, that just because somebody has a role within the church doesn't mean they're God's favorite. It means that's their role within the church. God used some really wicked people for his purposes in the Old Testament. Does that mean he loves them more than the people that he didn't choose? No. It means he chose to use them in that way. God doesn't have favorites. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he's talking about the differences between Jews and the Gentiles. So these are God's chosen people and then everybody else. In Romans chapter 2, he says, But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. No partiality. No favoritism. The King James, that phrase, you might recognize it is, God is no respecter of persons, right? There's no partiality with God. He's talking about the difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no partiality, Paul says. Ephesians 6, verse 9, in writing to slaves and masters, Paul says, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So no partiality, no favorites from God based on status, slave or free, rich or poor. And then Acts 10 verse 24, or does that say 34? 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, to the man who fears him and does what is right, is welcome to him. No favoritism based on nationality. What are you saying right there? Or race. Not even when it comes to God's chosen people in this way. No partiality for Jew or Gentile. So just because Abraham and his line are chosen for this role for the world, it doesn't mean that there was some kind of favoritism that God was showing. God's concern is for the whole world. For God so loved the world. Not just these individuals who he thinks are especially special, but for God so loved the world that he sent his son for the world, not to condemn the world, but to save it through him. The whole world. Those are Jesus' own words. So does God have favorites? No, there's no partiality with God. And for those who might come from family trees with broken branches or broken cycles that include favoritism, that might be a really hard thing for us to grasp when in our relationship with God or within the church, when we say, Father God has no favorites, but it's the truth, it's the truth. And that's really important for us to grab a hold of because of what we just acknowledged a few minutes ago with the situation with Esau and Jacob. 
what did we say about favoritism within families? We said that favoritism within families creates competition. Favoritism within families creates competition. Favoritism puts family members against odds or at odds with one another, in tension with one another, because it creates an environment where there is fighting for the affection, where there is competition or fighting for the approval or for the blessing or for the opportunity from parents. That's what favoritism does. It creates that environment of competition where we're competing for the approval of our parents. And some people need to know that God does not have favorites, and therefore, the Christian life is not competition. Relationship with God is not a competition. It's not a competition. No part of it is. There is no sense in which your relationship with God or in your relationship with God where you are compared to another individual. It's not a competition. Nothing. Your relationship with God is solely your relationship with God. There is no blessing. There is no favor. There is no condemnation. There is no judgment. Nothing in your relationship to God has anything to do with another person in their relationship with God. Not a competition. Combine that with the fact that God has no favorites, and all of a sudden there's no need to out-Christian somebody else. Because you're not competing for God's attention. You're not competing for his favor. You're not competing for his blessing. God has those things in unlimited quantity. There is no limit to the amount of attention that he can give you. You had his attention before time began. That's why he set up the whole thing. You had his attention before you were born. You're not competing for God's attention. You're not competing for his reward. You don't need to out-Christian someone in order to be one of God's favorite. You are his favorite right now, already, right now. So the spirit of competition that I see and that sometimes I even feel between people in the church is just, it's unnecessary. It's not necessary. There is not, there is not, there, there is no benefit waiting for you if you're superior somehow than your neighbor. There's no benefit to that. None. There are systems that are quasi-Christian that would encourage you to believe that. That if you do the best, if you convert the most people, or if you uh, um, um, experience the most um, whatever blessing or whatever, you get out there and you do the most things, then you can be a part of the 144,000 that is elevated above everybody else, right? But that's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. It doesn't work that way because it's not a competition. Y'all know me. I'm not a big fan of social media right now, especially right now. Um, but I see posts from Christians directed to Christians, okay? Brothers, sisters, brothers and sisters. And I see these posts, and I'm gonna, I want to show a couple of memes up here, right? They're bad memes. They're not, well, one of them's kind of funny. But <laughs> put those up there. So there's this meme right here. I saw this one not too long ago. This is actually from one of my friends on Facebook. And it says, Christianity, and it has a big buff dog, has a rich intellectual heritage with thousands of years of serious theology. Contemporary Christianity, 
Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship, right? And it's this puny dog, kind of shy, whatever. From Christians, directed at Christians, okay? Ironically, this, is, this one's from the same person. I'm going to put that up there. This is the, the beginner's guide to arguing theology on the internet. Everybody is wrong but me is the name of the, top, is the, name of the book, right? Everybody is wrong but me. It's a beginner's guide to arguing theology on the internet. From the same person. But these posts or posts like this are disguised as I want what's best for you posts, right? I want what's best for you. I, I want you to know this. But really... What happens is it comes across as my way is better than yours. My way is better than yours. I'm doing it right. I'm doing it better. You see what I mean? Do you know what I mean? And it's a competition of who is the better Christian. I'm not saying don't speak the truth. Speak the truth. But when you speak the truth, ask yourself, what is motivating me to speak this? What is motivating me to do this? Is it because you really care about the person who's going to read that and you really think this is going to help them somehow in their walk with Christ? Or is it because you want people to know that you're more devout than them and you want God to be proud of you for telling other people that they're not doing it right and they need to do it your way? It's not a competition. It's not a competition. And I can promise you, if you're a believer in Christ, he's already proud of you. You don't need to do anything to make him more proud of you. He doesn't get more or less proud of you based on you doing more or less stuff or telling more or less Christians that they're wrong. It's not a competition. Christianity is not a competition. In fact, I would look at one of those memes, and if we want to have an argument, I would say that big buff guy that has thousands of years of intellectual whatever in theology, I would look at that and go, yeah, I wouldn't turn that into a buff dog. I'd turn that into a fat dog, right? who has all the extra weight and all the baggage of thousands of years. And the slim dog, it wasn't really slim, but I would have a picture of a nice, healthy dog that says, when we get down to the basics, it's about a relationship with God. Right? And this whole idea of competition and favoritism that breeds competition, it's not a new uh, thing for the church. Paul had to address this thing even a few years after the church uh, was birthed. In Corinth, in 1 Corinthians uh, 1.12, Paul writes this. He says, now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that none of you would say you were baptized in my name. Paul is talking about differences and arguments of doctrine where we're competing with one another saying, yeah, but I'm from Paul. I got the real word. No, I'm from Peter. I got the real word, right? And he's saying, listen, it's not a competition. It's not a competition. It's Jesus, and I don't care how you got there, and I don't care what it looks like right now. It's relationship with Christ. That's what Paul's saying. So there's no need to point, and, and, and no point in putting other people down who uh, you might think are less mature than you. It's not a competition in who can be the most mature or holy. In fact, 
I would say if you want to see people grow and mature because you're genuinely concerned about people growing and maturing, then walk beside them. Walk with them when they aren't mature. Live in relationship with people who aren't as mature as you. First of all, you may not be as mature as you think you are, right? Second of all, they'll grow and you'll grow. But stop competing for God's attention and for God's love. He has no favorites. He has no favorites. There's no need to compete. There was favorites in Jacob's family. So Jacob felt the need to compete for his father's blessing. So he pounced on this opportunity and to get this birthright from Esau. Jacob did whatever he needed to do to get it. But as a believer, where there is no competition in favoritism, and God has no favorites who get more or, le- or, or those who get less, every believer who is born again gets the birthright. Okay? Jacob had to fight and, and manipulate his way into getting the birthright. Every believer who is born again gets the birthright. There's no competing for it. Everybody gets it. Now, remember what the birthright is? Let's talk about it for a second. We said the birthright for for Esau and Jacob, it was the authority of the father. That's what you got as a birthright. You got a double portion of the inheritance and you got the priestly duties and responsibilities. Guess what? That's the same birthright we get. Same birthright from your heavenly father when you're born again. And you get it simply because you were born. As a believer, you get the birthright. It's not the select few. It's for everybody who has been born again. So what is our birthright? A, our birthright is the authority of the Father. That's part of the birthright. We have the authority of God. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. We have the authority of the Father. We have the authority of the Father. John 20, verse 22. And when he said this, talking to his disciples, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins, they have been retained. That's authority. Jesus said, you have the authority. That is the birthright. There is no competition for that authority. When you are his child, you have that authority. It's your birthright. Not for the select few who get to stand up on a stage. You have that authority as being born again, because you're his child. That's why I stand up here during ministry time, and I say, listen, this is a royal priesthood. You get to minister to one another, okay? You have that authority. Go to one another and pray. You have the authority as part of your birthright, as much as I do. In Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve the authority to rule over creation, all creation, if we've been redeemed and we've been made right again because he's given us that spirit and we're back to what Adam and Eve were created to be because that's what we believe, that we're born again, we're made new, then we have the authority to rule over creation. We have dominion over creation. You have the authority of the Father. What is your birthright? A, 
Your birthright is the authority of the father. B, you get a double portion of the inheritance. But everybody gets a double portion. You have more than enough. You have more than enough. You are a child of the king. What is his is yours. It never runs out. And I'm not saying you're always going to have all the stuff and all the money that you want. But come on. When we have his blessing and his favor, trusting him with our money and with our stuff, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. We have his inheritance spiritually, physically, financially, emotionally, relationally. We get a double portion of it. And lastly, what is your birthright? Part of your birthright is the authority of the father, a double portion of the inheritance, and the functions of the priesthood. That might be the best of it all. It means that you get the face-to-face relationship with God. You get to approach him boldly and confidently with all reverence and all respect without fear. The priest got that relationship with God that nobody else got. The priest got to go into, the high priest got to go into the holy of holies. Nobody else got to do that. Every one of us gets to do that. Israel was supposed to be a nation of priests to the world. That's what God offered them, and they said, no, we can't handle that. We're scared of that. We can't do it. We need Moses and the law in between us. Now that law has been fulfilled, and you get the birthright of the priestly relationship with God. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You have inherited, it is your birthright, the face-to-face royal priesthood relationship with God. And it's not just for you either. The birthright that passed that relationship pass that relationship down to you but it also what comes with that relationship are the priestly duties the opportunities the role of connecting people with god that's what a priest did a priest connected people with god we get to connect the world to god we have this ministry second corinthians five seventeen. it says this therefore if any was in christ He's a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We all know that scripture. I've said it how many times in this, on a Sunday morning, right? But you're born again. You're a new creature. You're made new. If you're born again and made new, then you have a relationship with God, which means you get the birthright. You have the authority of the Father. You have the inheritance of the Father. And now, verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed us, to us, this word of reconciliation. He has committed to us the word of reconciliation, the word that God is reconciling to himself the world in Christ, through Christ. We inherit We get that as a birthright. That's ours. We inherit the authority of the Father. We inherit the inheritance. But we also get as part of the birthright the priestly duties. We get to connect the world to our Father God. And Paul goes on from there, verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors 
for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors, his ambassadors. He committed that word to you and to me, to those of us who are made new. It's part of your birthright. Now that you have this face-to-face priestly relationship with God, knowing that he's not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. Our lives being made new, that's an appeal to the world that God came to reconcile the world to him. It's your birthright. You get that because you were born again. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You got it because you were born again. And it brings us back to this idea of favoritism, brings us back to this idea of the spirit of competition, that if we are so engrossed in providing, or excuse me, proving to our brothers and sisters that we're a better Christian, or proving to God that we are worthy of his love and his attention, we aren't being very good ambassadors. We aren't being very good carriers of the word of reconciliation. Because we who are actually reconciled are still trying to get more reconciled. And we're saying that it didn't fix it. It didn't do it. It wasn't enough. And we're trying to continue to be reconciled by outdoing or by proving to God. But if you just understand that God doesn't have favorites. And that everybody who's born again through Christ gets the birthright. Then you can understand that you have no reason to compete in this family. Jesus is the prize, and you got him. Jesus is the prize. You get to live and enjoy that relationship with him. And I can guarantee if you do that, if you can live and enjoy that relationship with him, Other people are going to see that God reconciled you to him. And other people are going to be drawn. They're going to see the word of reconciliation that is your life. And that's your ministry. That's our ministry. That's my ministry. Why y'all stand to your feet? So. I was going to save this for after ministry time. But I think it goes here. Jacob, favoritism in their family required Jacob to compete with Esau to get the birthright. Esau had the birthright. It was given to him, right? But what did he do? Gave it away. He despised it. He didn't see the value of it. And he traded it for stew, right? Don't trade your birthright for stew. Don't trade your birthright, the authority of the father, the inheritance, the double portion of the inheritance, and the priestly duties, the face-to-face relationship that you get with God. Don't trade that in for religion, the stew that's religion. Because the stew made Esau feel real good right then. It satisfied him right then. But guess what? He got hungry again. It didn't satisfy. It didn't last. Religion doesn't last. Religion means I got to 
do better, I got to do more, I got to compete with other people to outlast. Don't settle for the stew. Don't despise the reality, the truth of your birthright. Your birthright is trusting God in relationship. And trusting what he's done in you as a new creation. So we're going to go into a couple more songs. We've got prayer team that wants to pray with you. I would just invite you to pray while you're praying. We've got three ladies in our church who are dealing with significant health issues right now. And I invite you to pray with them. Monica Simpson, you can pray for her. You can pray for uh, Leanne Isaac. She's having health issues as well, and they're not really sure what's going on. They're running tests right now, trying to figure it out. And you can pray for Roxanne. Um, She's got back issues right now. Like, they don't know what's going on with it, back issues. Please lift them up. Please remember them. Please reach out to them in really difficult times. Leanne's feeling fine right now, but she was in the ER because she couldn't stand up because of abdominal pain. We don't know what that was about, right? The doctors are trying to figure it out. So please pray for them. Pray for one another. Um, Sherry's dad has cancer. It's a reality. We're praying for healing. We're believing for healing, but pray for him. There are just so many things that are going on in people's lives that you may not know about, but you know how you find them out is you reach out and you ask how people are doing. That's how you find out. Don't depend on Facebook. I wouldn't put it on Facebook if I was dealing with something. I don't like Facebook right now. But let's just go to God and let's worship him and let's, let's trust the reality of who he says you are as his child and what it means that you get the birthright Without competing, let's go to God and let's worship him, not trying to out-worship somebody else, not comparing your worship to somebody else or your voice to somebody else. Doesn't matter. It's not a competition. Your relationship with God is your relationship with God. So I pray that uh, we can just go, God, we just pray right now that you would um, just bring us into your presence right now, Father. Bring us into your presence. Fill this space. Overwhelm us with your power, with your love, with your grace, God. Bring the reality and the truth of who you have made us to be into our minds, into our understanding, God. Take away all those definitions of family that are broken and replace it with your perfect family, with your vision for who uh, the family should be as a body, as a church. Replace the broken definitions of fatherhood, of, of, uh, of favoritism. Replace that, God, with a clear vision for who you are and how you see us and how you want to be with us. Replace it all, God. Take it away and replace it with your love and with your grace. We know that's the only way we could ever see truth and reality is by your grace. So we trust you with all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Justin. I hope this message has been meaningful to you today. I know many of you who listen to this podcast are not a part of our local church body. For those of you outside of our community or outside of our state, I would love to hear from you about how you discovered our church and maybe about how this ministry is impacting your life. You can reach out to us at info at capitalvineyard.org or find us on Facebook and message the church in that way. 
I would also let you know that you can now watch the sermon live on our YouTube channel each Sunday morning, a little bit after 10.45 a.m. The audio will begin as soon as the sermon starts. Either way, God bless you, and I hope you continue to grow and to mature in Christ in who he has already made you as his righteous and redeemed child. Amen, and God bless you.